0: You're listening to Ask Dr. E, where Dr. Michael Easley answers your biblical and theological questions in 10 minutes or less, or sometimes more like this episode. Here's today's question. What even is dispensationalism? Is there any accuracy in this approach? In full disclosure, I are one. So I just want you know to know I do hold to a dispensational view of theology. and I So also, you're going to say there is accuracy. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> or I'm wrong. You know, it's either, or. either it's accurate or I'm wrong. But let me give this preface. I know my answer, quote unquote, isn't going to persuade or convince a person who doesn't agree with dispensationalism. I know that. I have friends. Well, I call them friends, but I've had one gentleman whose name will remain protected who called me a heretic. Because I helped his they, we were at a conference together, wow. and uh, I had met him. Actually, I'd given him some money for his ministry because I was so impressed, and we met at a conference, and I was so eager to meet him, and I went and met the guy, and we were talking and had the best time, and and he asked me where we went to seminary. I said, Dallas he goes, are you a dispensationalist? It's like that. <laughs> and he was mad when I walked away. He was telling me a heretic. I said, well, Bummer. did I get my money back? No, I didn't. But anyway, I still love him. He's just wrong. So first of all, let's talk about theology. Theology is the study of God. How are you going to study God? Yeah. It's an inexhaustible subject, even though we just have one book. Think about John Owens. John Owens had a 16-volume set for his systematic theology. That's one book of the Bible, 16 volumes to try to organize it and categorize it. Or think of a one-volume if you've listened in context, you know I love one-volume theology handbooks. I probably have 15 on my shelf, and I don't know, probably 100 in my Logos library. I love one-volume theologies. Why? Because how do I learn something about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, You can't do that with Bible study method. Well, you could, but it's going to take, take you a a long 300 time. hours. Yeah. But someone else has done the spade work. So think of, most of you probably know, Wayne Grudem. He's been on our program many times. Wayne has a systematic theology. Note the title, Systematic Theology. It's 57 chapters in the second edition. I think it's north of 1,300 pages. Crazy. And that's not a book people are going to Think of John Owen, 16 volumes? Yeah. Grudem trying to put it in one. Yeah. uh, Lewis Berry Chafer had an eight-volume theology, which I had to read. Um, So... (laughs) Before we get into dispensation proper, understand theology is the attempt to organize systematically subjects, themes, and doctrines about the Bible. What is God? Who is God? What is the Trinitarian Godhead? What is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Mm -hmm. What is the Trinity? Mm -hmm. What is the resurrection? What is redemption? What is reconciliation? Those are hard to find just by looking at in an English Bible without some help. So theology does this for us. Now, you perhaps have heard about Calvinist theology, Reformed theology, Covenant theology, Armenian, dogmatic Roman Catholic theology. These are labels that tell we're looking at the Bible through a Calvinistic lens, a Reformed lens, a Covenant lens. Make sense? You might have heard the phrase TULIP, mm-hmm. the word TULIP, which stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. And so that is a handy pocket way of remembering part of what's called classical Calvinism. I don't think it's a fair way to organize Calvin, but that's one way they organize Calvin. All of these are approaches and they all have nuances to a particular presupposition. Okay. So now When you use the word dispensationalism, I'm gonna argue it is another way of looking at theology. It's another way of doing theology. Now, there are within the umbrella of dispensationalists, there are all sorts of iterations, just like there are the above theologies I mentioned. There's disagreements between Reformed and Calvinist and Covenant theologians. And there are differences between different dispensationalists. For example, some hold a three. Mm -hmm. Some hold seven, some nine. There's even 11. I think someone told me there was 13 at one point. I don't know. Uh, There's progressive dispensationalism. Mm -hmm. There's kind of a a novel phrase, Mm neo-dispensationalism. Some of my professors from Dallas moved away to sort of a progressive dispensationalism. So all I'm trying to say before we get into my real precise short answers is this. Every theology uses a system to approach the Bible To organize it, to explain it, and try to fit it together. Mm -hmm. Every theology is some kind of system to organize, to approach, to organize, explain, and fit together this wonderful book. All right. Now, with that, let me give you the reasons I are a dispensationalist. There's five key terms, and then I want to give you two examples of this. So we talk about a hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is the way we read and approach the Bible. So we're doing hermeneutics when we study the Bible. And we do this through five words. Normal, grammatical, literal, historical, theological. One more time. Normal, grammatical, literal, historical, theological. Normal. What's the normal understanding of those words in the Bible? What does it mean in that context? Grammatical. Using the rules of grammar. There's Hebrew grammar, there's Greek grammar, there's English grammar. Do we have to use the normal rules of grammar? The old sentence about man without her woman is a beast. You've mm-hmm. seen that written on a marker board. Mm-hmm. You could take that several ways. Man without her woman, woman's a beast. Mm-hmm. Man without her, woman is a beast. Is so. Yeah. So, so that's grammar. Literal. And this is where sometimes I think unfairly dispensationalists are accused of being literalists. No, literal means the understanding and meaning of the Bible in the ordinary sense, unless it is figurative. So, when we say the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the world that he might find those who are truly his, we don't see two eyeballs circle on the planet. We have an image, a metaphorical, figurative image of God looking at the earth, okay? Historical. What did it mean in that historical context? What's going on in the time of Cyrus? What's going on in the time of the Egyptian captivity? What's going on in exile? What's going on historically in the first century with the Herods? Okay, And then theologically, and this goes back to the broader umbrella, a consistent consideration of the whole Bible. Normal, grammatical, literal, historical, theological. It doesn't work to be tulip, and I'm not going to even try and say what it is. (laughs) Now, I think that is the best approach and not only reading the Bible, but doing theology. And that is in a thumbnail why I'm a dispensationalist. I'm not a dispensationalist because I think there's a time of law, grace, and kingdom. Those would be three dispensations. I'm a dispensationalist because when I come to the Bible, normal, grammatical, literal, historical, theological, that leads me to being a dispensationalist. The word dispensationalism does not occur in the Bible, just like the word Trinity doesn't occur. Right again, keep in mind this is a system, but one of the verses that helps me tremendously. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. That verse is not, a dispensational verse, that verse is spelling out the word administration, this a This this idea of God organizing things to the fullness of time, the summing up of all things in Christ. So that would be a thumbnail way of thinking about it. Let me give you, again, law, grace, kingdom, and there's lots of ways to divide these, but we have a period of law in the Old Testament. Um, some would look at, for example, Adam was a dispensation, but it was still law. Don't eat of this one tree. Mm -hmm. He broke it. God didn't change his plan, Mm -mm. but there's a problem now. Mm -hmm. So Adam has consequences from that. So that could be argued. This is a time of law. The Old Testament is all law. Here's the word of God. You fall short. Grace, of course, was taught in the Old Testament, but it wasn't experienced like it was when Christ came. So we have the dispensation of grace, we would say, and then we have the dispensation of the church age, which will fold into the future. So law, grace, not the church age. Law, grace, and kingdom are the ones I want to talk about. Now we talk about the church age being you know where we are now. And again, you can parse these out, three, five, seven, nine, eleven, apparently. as many as, as you want. But the broad strokes are there was a time of law, there's a time of grace, and then a future kingdom. And that's where Ephesians one 10 and 11 tell us now let me tell you real practically the key issues to me that keep me a dispensationalist over other theologies one is what's called replacement theology this is very important replacement theology is the teaching that the church took the place of israel yeah And you will find among those many who would call themselves reform folks. And again, I'm not mad. I love them. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know they'd hold the same of me, but I'm not mad at them, but they believe in replacement theology. I was at a table, uh, Hannah. I've told this story before in D.C. many, many years ago. Michael Cromarty, a fine Christian man with the Lord now, had a function. And there were uh, maybe three tables of eight or ten pastors. And we're sitting there waiting on this speaker And, you know, you talk about movies and books and whatnot. I had just gotten back from Israel, I think, and I knew these guys were not in my camp, so to speak. And I asked the question, I said, all pastors of churches in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C., I said, how many of you guys have been to Israel? And I think maybe one had. And I said, in the scheme of Scripture, is Israel an important part or is it just a piece piece of dirt? dirt. Yeah. And they went around the table, and all of them essentially said it was just a piece of dirt. Yeah, wow. Michael Cromartie was sitting right to my left, and he and I had a collegial relationship. And he goes, well, given your parameters, <laughs> he goes, it's more than a piece of dirt, but not much. <laughs> wow. And we laughed about it, and he got up and introduced the speaker. No one asked me, though. Yeah, they didn't want to know you They didn't want to know. That. Well, they knew, it. They knew it already, I guess. <laughs> I was the dispensationalist in the room. I was a skunk. That's replacement theology. That's saying that Israel no longer, quote, matters because Christ inaugurated his church at Pentecost. Now, the problem I have with that goes back to that hermeneutic. What do I do with Deuteronomy chapter 30? What do I do with all these unconditional, unilateral covenants that God made with Abraham? You will be a blessing. Mm -hmm. If I look at the Edemic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant, these are unconditional, unilateral promises that God made. In other words, he's going to keep them. He's going to dispense them whether man agrees or not, we might say. Abraham was going to be a blessing whether he cooperated or not, and that's the story of Ishmael. Mm-hmm. Abraham is going to be a blessing to the world. God is not going to globally destroy the earth by water ever again. That's the Noahic covenant. The problem I have with replacement theology is God made promises uniquely to Israel that have not been fulfilled. Mm-hmm. They never fulfilled the entire land. and my. Mm-hmm. My friends who say, yes, they did. And I said, you haven't read Judges chapter one. Much of the land was left unconquered. So they didn't completely hold it. And if they held it, there's argument. They held it for this little period of time. Going, No, that's not what he meant. He meant they would possess that land permanently. And so I just have a real heartache, as you can tell by my voice. Replacement theology, I think, is wrong. Israel plays a role in God's eternal plan. I don't understand all I know about the Jew and about Israel and who is Israel and who is the Jew. I do know this, that little piece of real estate plays an important part in God's program. Christ is born there. There's going to be returned return there. Mm-hmm. He's going to reign from there. And you can't wipe that out of the Bible because right. the church age came along and somehow we say, oh, we can replace it. Let me just sum this up. I'm going to come back to two primary issues that I are a dispensationalist. One, the normal, grammatical, literal, historical, theological, hermeneutic. The way we approach the Bible from those lens keeps us understanding how the story unfolds. Secondly, one of the key issues for me is what my friends call replacement theology, that Israel and the church no longer matter. I don't think you can take those covenant promises that God made, the unilateral ones, like the Davidic covenant, there will always be someone on the throne of David, meaning Jesus Christ, that we will always have this new covenant in his blood. You can't say those are changed because we turn the page on a chapter of theology. So replacement theology, hermeneutic, those are two reasons why I maintain dispensationalism is a, a good way of thinking. If you've got a question for Ask Dr. E, call us or text us at 615-281-9694. Or you can email us at question at michaelincontext.com. We would love to hear from you. Ask Dr. E is a production of Michael Easley in Context. The music for this show is composed by Jason Germain. And you can find more biblical resources at michaelincontext.com.